proceeding. Okay, so today we're we'll looking at one of the most well-known stories in probably all the scriptures, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This is a story many of us maybe have heard from the time we were very little. This is a story that has captured people's attention for centuries uh, since it was written by the Apostle John. Interestingly enough, some of the early surviving examples of Christian art we have actually include frescoes, paintings of Jesus raising Lazarus that were painted inside of these Roman catacombs, those are tombs. This was done by the early church, sometime we think anywhere from about 100 to 150 years after John actually completes his gospel. We can think about the fact that the early Christians, the fact that they would paint this scene of Lazarus inside the places they were buried, that tells us something very important about how the church understood this passage that we read today. The early church understood that the Lazarus story to be a story not only about what Jesus has done for Lazarus and raising him from the dead, but it's a story about the hope of every single Christian, our coming eternal resurrection from the dead. The Lazarus story also teaches us about our past and our present and our future. It gives us a glimpse and a foreshadowing of the greatest event to ever happen in history, Jesus' triumphant resurrection from the dead. And it teaches us how to live the Christian life right now in the present by teaching us what do we do with our pain and our suffering and how we can grieve well. And the Lazarus story also turns our eyes to the future to the hope that awaits us, our hope of experiencing a resurrection that will be even far more glorious than what we read about that Lazarus himself experienced. So let's turn our attention now to John 11, the passage that we read, and let's dig into it. All right, so again, our passage today is likely very familiar to us, uh, the scene where Jesus raises one of his good friends, Lazarus, from the dead. If you read John's Gospel, this is actually the climactic seventh sign. There's seven major miracles that John highlights in his Gospel um, that he chooses to highlight um, in order to display Jesus' nature as God incarnate, God in the flesh, the glories of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, as John's prologue mentions at the beginning. So our passage opens with a family, a description of the family, two sisters, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, and this unfolding tragedy of Lazarus' illness and then his subsequent death. It's clear from the very beginning that this was a family that Jesus was very close to, a family who loved Jesus and who was loved by him. We're told in verse 2 that Mary in this family is the same Mary who later is going to show up in John's gospel, who would take a, a pound of very expensive perfume and anoint Jesus' feet and also wipe them with her hair. You can see in verse 3, Lazarus is described as the one whom Jesus loved. So it's clear all throughout this story that outside of Jesus' own disciples, this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, was likely some of the closest people that Jesus ministered to uh, during his earthly ministry. It's obvious in our story that Jesus had a very deep bond, a very deep connection uh, to Lazarus and his family. There are people who shared a history with Jesus. 
These would have been people who had shared meals together and laughter and triumph and sorrows and all the other things that bonds together close friends. And so in the beginning of our passage, Jesus gets word about his good friend Lazarus from his sisters, Mary and Martha, that Lazarus is very seriously sick. What's clearly implied from their message is they want Jesus to come right away so that he can heal Lazarus. Later in our story, it's very clear that Mary and Martha believe this. They believe that Jesus has the power to save Lazarus from death by healing him. Then in verse 4, Jesus basically tips his hat as to what he's going to do later in our story. He says to those who are with him, his disciples, he says, This illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus already reveals to us really how the story is going to end. That death will not be final for Lazarus and that God is going to use Lazarus' suffering to reveal God's glory in Jesus. And so in verses 5 through 6 we read that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But then we're told he does something that has to look strange to us. Something quite unique. Maybe something that would even appear to be callous or cruel. We're told in verse 6 that after hearing that the people he loves, this person he loves, Lazarus, is very sick and ill, we're told that Jesus basically does nothing, right? Nothing at all for two more days. He stays where he is. Verses 5 and 6 don't really seem like they go together, do they? If we were writing the story about Jesus, this likely would not be how we would write it. If we would have written the story, this is likely is what we would have written, right? In 5 and 6. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he immediately goes and rushes to see them. That's what we would have done. Because the general operating assumption for most of us is in our relationships is that if you really love somebody, you don't let them suffer. You do everything in your power to stop the suffering. But Jesus doesn't do this here, does he? This detail of our story tells us something very important, something very relevant for our own suffering. We can apply the same thing in our story to our lives. There are times when Jesus lets us suffer. And he does this to purposefully reveal God's glory in a fuller way. Suffering and glory are not always diametrically opposed. In fact, they are connected in powerful ways, something that we see in our passage and something that is really at the very heart of the gospel message itself. Is Jesus interested in ending my suffering? It is a very valid question. And ultimately, of course, the answer to this is yes. Our future bodily resurrection assures us of that truth. The culmination of the entire story of redemption happens at the end of Revelation, where we are given the stunning description of how God will come again and Jesus will be forever united with his bride and God will wipe away every tear from his people's eyes. The people of God, between now and that day, the complete removal of all the suffering is not, isn't necessarily God's greatest agenda 
for us. And we have to see this in the scriptures. Between now and the final resurrection, pain will be a necessary part of God's redemptive plan for us. This is the plan for Jesus. This is the Father's plan that he gave him. That glory and life will come, but it will come through great suffering. It will come even through death. And the Father has ordained for us a similar path uh, as we follow the risen Lord Jesus. We must endure the suffering to get to the glory. To make it to the glory of Easter Sunday, we have to be willing to endure the agony of Good Friday. And so in the first half of our passage, Jesus makes this plain to his disciples that his delay in going to Lazarus in the midst of his suffering wasn't because he was cruel. It wasn't because he was apathetic. But because he wants the disciples and everyone there to more clearly see God's glory. And so that people put their faith in him. And the disciples don't really understand this at first. In a way that's very common to John's gospel, that don't really understand what Jesus initially means when he says this. Jesus metaphorically tells them in verse 11, Lazarus has fallen asleep and Jesus is going to wake him. And after they fail to understand what Jesus means, we're told in verse 14, he says plainly to them, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so you may believe. But let us go to him. So in verse 17, we see Jesus beginning to make his way to where Lazarus is, to where Mary and Martha lived as well. And we're told that by the time Jesus gets close to where they lived, uh, Lazarus has now been dead for four whole days. He's been in the tomb. Again, you just see this deep love that this family has for Jesus by the fact that Martha, she hears about Jesus coming even before he gets there. And she takes off to meet him before he gets to the house. We can see that even in Martha's deep heartache and grief, she decides to move towards Jesus. What Martha really does is give us a beautiful picture of what it looks like to put our faith in Jesus while we suffer. And so what happens when she makes her way to him? We're told that she tells Jesus something that I think is very honest. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she says to him, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And a few verses later, we will see Mary make really the same kind of statement that Martha does, saying to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Can you hear the anguish and those statements to Jesus? And really what Mary and Martha are saying here is something that's, that's very important. And their statements to Jesus, they're implying that if only Jesus had come earlier, they could have been spared the agony of watching their brother suffer and then die. You can really think about what's implied in the statement that they both made. Do you know what they're really implying in this, these statements? They're implying the question, Jesus, where were you? Jesus, where were you? And what they're saying is so important here because that is really, what, what they're doing is they're communicating the language of lament. Something that we see throughout the scriptures, especially in places like the Psalms. 
Let a lament is so important for us as God's people to know how to do this. Lament is how we voice our pain to God in ways where we are brutally honest, even as we continue to trust God. Lament is where we bring our heartbreaking questions to God and we cry out to him for his help and his comfort. You find these questions all throughout the scriptures. You find them especially all over the the book of Psalms. Questions like, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? You can think about some of Jesus' very last words on the cross. These were words of lament straight out of the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People of God, this is harder for some of us to actually believe. But God really doesn't want you to do this. He wants you to voice your deepest pain, your deepest disappointment and frustration to him. He wants you to bring your questions to him that express your deepest lament. He wants you to pour out your heart to him and ask him all the things that we are just too afraid to say out loud to other people. Questions like, why did the baby die? Why does the person that I love so much have to suffer? How long will my marriage feel so broken? How long will my body suffer like this? Why have I been betrayed or rejected or harmed by someone who was supposed to have cared? Lament is crucial, again, for us as God's people because it's how we honestly address our pain to God. And yet we still avoid what Pastor Mark Vergrip describes as the ditches of despair and denial. All right, so how does Jesus answer Martha's statement of agonizing lament? He first tells her that her brother brother Lazarus will rise again. And Martha's response again reveals that she doesn't really exactly understand what Jesus means. She tells Jesus that she knows that her brother will rise again later, on the last day. It's clear that Martha had no idea that Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in the present was even an option. It's not anywhere on her radar of possibilities. So Martha's looking all the way to the very end of time, towards God, at the end of God's plan of redemption, when he comes again and he raises the dead and he judges the world, something that many people in first century Israel would have believed, rightly so. But what Jesus wants her to see is that, in a very real sense, judgment day at the end, and God's resurrection at the end, have already started They've already begun in his coming to earth. And he doesn't want her to put her faith only in this future event, but instead he wants her to put his faith in himself right now, in the present, in the midst of all her grief, in the midst of all her sorrow. He tells her in verses 24 to 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's asked her, do you believe this? Verse 24, we see the fifth of seven statements. John likes likes sevens. 
So we see seven I am statements uh, in the Gospel of John, and this is the fifth one by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. So in this statement, Jesus basically tells Martha that the resurrection, in a very real sense, has moved from the future and has already begun in the present in his person and in his presence. And the coming of Jesus, God's final restoration of the world, in a very real sense, it's already started. It's already begun according to Jesus. There's a sense that even before Jesus' own death and resurrection, God had already set in motion his resurrection power in Jesus. And Jesus obviously will later prove the validity of this statement, I am the resurrection and the life, in an even deeper sense. When the Father raises him from the dead and undoes and defeats the power of death in this definitive way. The second part of what Jesus is saying here communicates that God's promises apply to all his people right now in the present. That for all those who look in faith to Jesus, there will be life after death. And that there is no ultimate death that is final for the people of God. And Jesus asked Martha if she believes this. Do you believe this is true? Jesus wants Martha, even in the midst of her vast sorrow, to fix her eyes on him and his promises so that she can have an anchor in the midst of the storm of her deep grief and her sadness. In the midst of her suffering, Jesus is basically asking her, do you trust me? And again, we see Martha's faith in action when she responds to Jesus, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. Martha's confession here is even more remarkable when we consider that in the Gospels we really don't get many clear, explicit statements from others that really confess Jesus' true identity. So what happens next? After Jesus speaks with Martha, he goes now and he asks to see her sister Mary to speak with her. And again, we see something very similar here with uh, Mary uh, that we do with Martha. She expresses her devotion her reverence to Jesus. She's going to trust Jesus. And she, we see this in the fact that she throws herself on the ground before Jesus at his feet. But again, she's also honest about the pain and her deep disappointment, saying once again the same thing that Martha said to Jesus, that if only he'd been there, Lazarus could have been spared his tragic death. Like Martha and Mary, again, teaches us how to do lament well, how we can move towards Jesus even while we suffer and grieve, and how we can be honest about our pain while we do that. I'm, I'm amazed by how Jesus responds. Look carefully at what he says and what he does. John tells us that when Jesus sees this scene before him, he's begin to make his way closer and closer to where Lazarus is. And he sees and he hears the sounds of the ensuing funeral. Right? We can think about all the things we've seen, we've seen and heard at funerals. There's crying and there's weeping. People are heartbroken. People are trying to console one another. And when Jesus sees this scene in verse 33, we're told that he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly Troubled, And there's lots of ink spilled on what exactly this means. What does it mean that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit when he shows up to the scene uh, of grieving, heartbroken people? This phrase shows up twice in our passage, deeply moved in spirit. It's going to come again later in verse 38. 
And what's really easy to miss in a lot of our translations is the fact that there's a very clear element of anger. There's a clear element of indignation uh, that's attached to this verb that's translated as, as deeply moved in our passage. So we have to ask ourselves, what exactly about Lazarus' death makes Jesus angry? So we can go ahead and rule out some remarkably bad answers that people have given to this question. So Jesus is not angry because he sees people grieving, which some assume is a lack of faith on the part of those who are there. We're going to get to that more here in just a second. It really makes the most sense that Jesus is angry not at people, but at death itself. Because we know that death is a robber. Death is cruel. It is always a sign that our world is so deeply broken. There's always a sense that death is so emphatically wrong. It's just not the way things were supposed to be. Death from the beginning was not God's original design, but it came into our world through the entrance of evil and Satan in our world. The Bible has no framework for anything like the circle of life where death is just one natural aspect of this endless cycle. And we know this instinctively. Anyone who's ever stood before a small casket at a child's funeral knows this. Uh, anyone who's ever lost someone that you deeply love and care about, we instinctively know this. Death is the ultimate stamp that sin has left on our bodies and a sign that every human being stands in need of God's redemption. And so Jesus' anger at the misery and the cost of death propel him forward towards Lazarus's tomb. And I, I love this because it gives us a great example of how godly anger does good things. It can energize us towards redemptive actions, actions that seek to deal with the effects of the fall and reverse them. So in verse 34, Jesus asks Mary and the others where Lazarus has been put to rest, and so they lead him to the tomb where Lazarus has been buried. And then we get to verse 35. I think 35 is the shortest verse in all the scriptures, but it's easily, I think, the most astounding verse in all the Gospels. We're told that Jesus, God incarnate, the one by whom and for whom all things were made, he actually cries, he weeps. Isn't that incredible detail? That Jesus would do this, and he would do this moments before he raises Lazarus from the dead. And again, that's another part of our story that may not seem to make much sense. Right? Why would Jesus cry if he knows he's about to reverse the whole thing and raise Lazarus from the dead? If many of us, uh, maybe many of us men were in Jesus' shoes, this is what I think we would probably at, at least think, and maybe say, hopefully not, if we were in the midst of all these grieving people by the side of Lazarus' tomb. We would likely think something like, hey, wait, everyone, let's just hang on. There's no real reason to cry. Because you see, I'm, I'm about to raise Lazarus from the dead, so let's just stop with all the useless crying. And of course, hopefully none of us would actually say that. But many of us actually think that way. Many of us think that our logic should always supersede our emotions in a way that tries to downplay them or deny them or get rid of them in some way. I was confronted with this this last week, even as I, I prepared for the sermon. 
And I just read commentator after commentator on this passage who more or less says that Jesus' tears couldn't have been for Lazarus because he's about to raise him from the dead, that it would be, quote-unquote, unreasonable for Jesus to actually cry because Lazarus was dead. And if we follow that same logic, then we can really conclude that it's, it's pretty unreasonable for anyone to ever cry, for any Christian who has died, because of course we know we're going to be raised from the dead. People of God, that is a profoundly wrong view of our humanity that God has created and God's good design for our grief. And we work so hard, don't we, to avoid the grief, the sadness that we feel. When other people express emotions like this, we are quick to state great theological truths like God's sovereignty, which are, of course, gloriously true. But often we do this because we ourselves are so uncomfortable with other people's pain. And we don't know how to hear it or even be present with someone else while they experience it. But Jesus does emotions here in a way that is so different than how most of us do this. He fully feels deep grief even while knowing and believing the truth. That he's going to die on the cross and be raised from the dead and secure an eternal resurrection for Lazarus. And, And also, by the way, in a matter of seconds, he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus still cries. He still grieves over what has happened to someone he loves and he cares about. So what Jesus is doing when he's doing this, he's teaching us something very important about our inhumanity. That grief is the godly response to a broken world that has gone terribly wrong. Jesus sanctifies our grief through his own tears. And he helps us understand the meaning of our own tears. Jesus crying in our passage teaches us that faith and grief, they do not have to be opposed to each other. Jesus is the man of faith. He's the only human being who has ever perfectly trusted and obeyed his Father in all things. And if that's true, then that tells us that our grief, instead of being a lack of faith, it can be a very real good expression of our faith in God. And our grief is a way that we tell the truth about our broken world. That it needs a savior. That we long for God to come and make all things new. So God's good design for our grief is that it's a part of this vital process of making sense. Of telling the truth about our chaotic and broken and our shattered world. When we reject grief, when we say we can't do that because... We can't trust God while we do that. What we're really doing is lying to ourselves. And we're attempting to create an illusionary world, a world that's perfect right now, a world where nothing has gone wrong. And that is akin to a man who is trying to lie down in his bed and close his eyes and drift off to sleep while his house is on fire. And so many of us have a hard time with this. We have a hard time with grief because we've been taught maybe by our own families, or through our surrounding culture to reject the inherent weakness that we feel in grief. Even for those we love, sometimes we go to their funerals. How often do you hear messages like, don't cry for this person. Don't be sad because they're in heaven. She's not sad anymore. So again, collectively, it seems we have a difficult time believing 
and the actual goodness of grief and the necessity of doing something that is very, very human, that models the Lord Jesus. Many of us here, a lot of us men especially, we've associated shame with any feelings of weakness, including the emotion of grief, so that we work very hard to shut it off and ignore it as quick as we can. And when we do this, what we're really winding up doing is we're trying to be less human than Jesus himself is. So for the men here today, I want you to hear me say that strong, godly men are men that seek to imitate the Lord Jesus. And that means godly men aren't afraid to express emotions, right? Even painful ones like grief. And that's taken me a long time to see this and believe this. But the longer I've lived, the more sure I am that this is true. That stoic men who avoid hard emotions, they're not actually strong. They're really weak. They're men who are afraid to suffer. They're men who wrongly think that avoiding and hiding from my weakness is somehow going to make me strong. And so what Jesus does here, this short passage where we see his response, he gives us this display of humanity that is such a great corrective to how often we think and we do uh, emotions. Okay, let's move on to the, the climactic scene, right? The scene we've all been waiting for in this passage where Jesus actually raises Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus, again, we're told he's deeply moved as he comes to this cave where they place Lazarus' body. And so Jesus says something that no one seems to have understood what he meant once again. He tells them to take away the stone. And again, you just see the sheer honesty of what Martha is saying. That in a very respectful way, she more or less is saying, Jesus, that's a bad idea. <clears throat> because it, it's going to smell really bad because he's been rotting for the last four days. Again, you see in her comment here that it, it's not even possible within the realm of her imagination that Jesus is actually going to raise her brother back to life. But notice how Jesus responds. He responds in such a gracious way. He doesn't scold her for not believing he's able and willing to raise Lazarus. Instead, he just rhetorically asks her a question. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Again, he reminds her that he only wants her to trust him and that God reveals his glory to us uh, through our faith in him. And so Martha and the others, they, they simply obey Jesus' request and then move the stone that sealed the entrance to Lazarus' tomb. And then we see Jesus pray this, this very short, simple prayer to his father, saying, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. What's so striking me about this prayer is that Jesus never actually asks the Father for anything, does he? It's simply a prayer of thanksgiving for having already been heard. We see in this prayer something we see throughout the Gospel of John, this close, intimate relationship between the Son and the Father. And Jesus prays this prayer not only as a reflection of his relationship with the Father, but we're told he does this for evangelistic reasons, so that people would hear Jesus' prayer, see what he does next, and then put their faith in God the Father's purpose that's been revealed in the Son. 
So after praying the short prayer, Jesus cries out, and I love the fact that he calls Lazarus by his name. Lazarus, come out. And then the unthinkable becomes a reality. Life returns to Lazarus' body and he comes out of his grave. What John does here is he presents Jesus' actions as a prophet, the greatest prophet, the final prophet who speaks. And when he speaks, he reveals God's power and God's glory, much like Ezekiel, when Ezekiel spoke to this entire valley of dead bones that became living, breathing people. We don't read this in our passage, but surely we can reasonably imagine what the scene would have looked like next. Right? The sheer awe and shock of what people were seeing. In Jesus' powerful three words, we see this instant, dramatic, shocking reversal of the entire thing. A funeral would have had to have become a party. Life replaces death. Tears melt into cries of joy. And despair and suffering are banished like powerless, defeated foes. The horror of death is just stripped off of Lazarus just as easily as these linen strips came off of his body. And Jesus only has to speak to make all this happen. And God's glory is put on display in a way that would instantly fuel worship of the living God that was revealed in Jesus. Jesus' final words in our passage, commanding those around Lazarus to unbind him and let him go, are words of liberation. The picture we get from Jesus' final words in our scene communicates that death had Lazarus in its grip, but Jesus has set Lazarus free from its power. Now, especially since we're in the season of Easter, obviously there's so many things about this story that should have a very familiar ring to it. We can understand this entire story is really just a prelude to Jesus' own resurrection, the resurrection that eternally secures our own. As glorious as Jesus uh, raising Lazarus from the dead was, Lazarus being rescued from the power of death, we know, was just a temporary mercy that one day ran out when Lazarus one day died again. But the scriptures describe Jesus' own resurrection as the resurrection that has eternally secured our own, our future final resurrection is still to come. Our unshakable assurance that one day we will be erased from the dead and receive a body that will never again suffer, it will never again sin, rests completely on the fact of what Jesus accomplished on his own resurrection. Lazarus' rescue from death was temporary, but Jesus has forever disarmed the power and sting of sin and death, and is guaranteed for us a coming, future, permanent resurrection that inaugurates for us the life we are all longing to live. And this will be the day when finally all our grief, it'll be forever gone. It'll be the day when the Lord Jesus finally wipes away all our grief because there's going to be nothing left to grieve over in our broken world. The great reversal of death we see in the story of Lazarus gives us just this small glimpse of the future glory that awaits all of us as God's people. People of God, what will enable you to persevere in the grief that you feel? What will keep you from giving in to the terrible voice of despair that evil will speak to you, telling you that God has left you? 
that his promises may be for other people, but they're just not for you. That maybe God is cruel, or that he just isn't there. People of God, what enables us to persevere in our grief is the assurance of God's future resurrection that has been secured only in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If we live long enough, all of us at some point will endure experiences so painful that the grief we feel whenever we even think about the event will be something that will linger on for many, many years. Some wounds cut so deep for us that there will always be some feeling of grief connected even to the remaining scar. For some of us, because of certain ways that our bodies are broken, grief is going to be a regular part of maybe even daily life for the remainder of our lives. And it's important to see that our persistent grief that we feel over some of our losses, it's not a sign that you don't trust God. It's not even a sign that you have no progress in the Christian faith. Instead, it's a sign that we are committed to following Jesus and grieving in ways that reflect his own grief. It's a sign that we're committed to telling the truth again and again. But only because of Jesus' victory over death and his resurrection can we know for sure that our grief has an expiration date. That grieving is an important part of how we make sense of life this side of heaven. But that the day is coming when grief, it'll be done forever. Because Jesus defeated death in his own resurrection, he's forever secured a future for us that is devoid of grief. And so what sustains us and enables us to persevere in the emotional marathon of grief is the very real hope that grief is an important part of our present, but it is not our eternal future as a people of God. Grief is not our destiny as the children of God. People of God, your living hope in Jesus will outlive your grief. The day is coming when God himself will come to our earth and heaven and earth will be united. And he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Now there shall be mourning or crying or pain anymore, because the former things will have passed away. And in that day, we will join our voices together once again, like we do here. Only it will be with a pure, unadulterated joy. And we will sing with a perfected voice and a perfected body and a perfected world. Thine be the glory risen conquering son endless is the victory or death has won amen, amen.